You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, indeed, a Merry Christmas. Good morning to you. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and keep them open to Luke chapter 2. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, you'll find a black book in front of you, which is a pew Bible. Matter of fact, let me allow, allow me to give that to you as a Christmas gift if you don't have a copy of God's Word. You know, nobody, nobody wants to miss Christmas. I mean, who would? Jack Frost is nipping at your nose and chestnuts roasting over an open fire. But when you think about missing Christmas, how do you know if you've got Christmas? There's a lot of ways we think about capturing Christmas. We think about watching the holiday movies at this time of year. A hundred movies on average, a hundred Christmas movies are made on average on any given year. Isn't that incredible? When we think about making sure that we grab all of Christmas, we think about decorations, whether it's a tree or tinsel or lights, and you can do all that, but you may not have captured the essence of Christmas, the power of Christmas. In fact, when we think about the holiday specials, if we go all the way back to the classic Rudolph, then we learn that Rudolph tells us the ultimate message is to triumph over bullying. Or if we go back to Wonderful, Wonderful Life with George Bailey, we learn that his life is really worth living after all. Or if we think about Clark Griswold of that Christmas fame, he tells us that family is really the essence of Christmas. Is that what Christmas is? How do I know if I've got Christmas, if I've captured Christmas, if I'm getting every piece out of Christmas? We're doing this little series entitled The Characters of Christmas so that we can best capture the essence of the first Christmas on the faces, capture their joy, those original pieces. In fact, let's do this. Would you grab your smartphone, your smart device? We're going to take a little quiz today. We're going to test your Christmas knowledge. So go ahead and grab your phone, if you will, and hold it up to the QR code. At this point, my first service, the traditional 8 o'clock, they did it faster than you. So I'm not saying you're slow. I'm just saying you might not speed up a little bit. All right, you ready? We're going to give you five questions, give you another minute, get the QR code. Results will be on our social media tomorrow, and I'll be telling you the answers throughout today. Here we go. Here's our first question. Where is Joseph from? Where, don't say it out loud, but look at it together. Joseph was from, was he from Bethlehem? Was he from Arimathea? Was he from Russia? I'll let you choose. Here's our second question. You've got to go fast. Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem by, was it camel? Was it donkey? Was it a minivan that stopped every minute when everybody had to go to the restroom? Or we don't know. I'll let you choose. Question number three on your Christmas knowledge. You ready? There was no room in the inn because Joseph forgot to make the online reservation. Why was there no room in the inn? I'll let you find your, find your answer there. Here's your fourth question. Jesus was born in an inn, a hostel, a guest room, or Holiday Inn Express. You take your pick there. That's a tricky one. Be careful with that. Number five. Here we go. A manger is something that a feeding trough or something that Joanna Gaines makes down in Waco. So I'll let you pick among those five results that your choices by the church will be on social media. But in the next few moments, I want to look with you who are worshiping at home or worshiping here. What are we looking at here today? Today, I want to talk to you about the Grinch that stole Christmas, the innkeeper. You ready? 
Look at me first. If you're going to understand Christmas, capture Christmas, you cannot miss. You cannot miss where Christmas took place. Don't miss where Christmas took place. Look at verse 7 of Luke chapter 2. This is a pretty famous verse. The Bible says here, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Thomas Jefferson years ago was vice president. Upon being vice president, he made a visit to the city of Baltimore, to their hotel. He went in and asked for a room. Only Thomas Jefferson was not dressed as a vice president should be in that day and time. Instead, he had work clothes on. And so the man behind the counter, if you will, the owner of the hotel, turned him away. It wasn't for a few more minutes that one of the hotel's workers said to the owner, the manager, said, do you realize who you've just turned away? You've turned away the vice president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. At this moment that the manager sends employees out looking for then the vice president. When they do find him, Jefferson had been checked into another hotel, and he said, quote, tell Boyden, the owner of the hotel there, tell Boyden that I value his good intentions, value them highly, but if there's no room for a dirty farmer, there's no room for the vice president. Now that story makes me think of one story in particular. It makes me think of Bethlehem and the manger and the innkeeper. Is it not? You know how the traditional Christmas story goes? It goes like this. The general view most of us have, thinking of Christmas and reading that passage that was just read a moment ago, is that Joseph and Mary arrived late in the night in Bethlehem. She is great with child. They go to the hotel, they go to the inn. There's a no vacancy sign, no doubt in neon. There is a manager of the inn who says, I I have no room for you, even though she's great with child. He says, I've got no room for you. Turns a pregnant woman away. I mean, who would do that? Who would turn a pregnant woman away, right? Here's a guy that's valuing dollars over anything else. Here's a, here's a man that's valuing profits with an F over the profit that will grow up. And so they turn this Jesus away, and the city is just teeming with people due to the census that was read a moment ago. And then Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus go to a barn because there's no room in Bethlehem. Is that your understanding of Christmas? That's been my understanding for years. Let's look at the story again. Let me show you first this myth. Jesus, here's number one, myth, Jesus was born in an inn. Let me show you in verse 7. The Bible says again, look at the back end of it, because there was no place for them in the inn. You need to know first and foremost that Bethlehem would have been a small, small town. There was no major commercial roads heading into Bethlehem, none whatsoever. And so not only does Bethlehem not have a Marriott, it's doubtful that you have a Motel 6, you know, the one that says, I'm going to leave the light on for you. There would have been no inn in Bethlehem for them to go to. If there would have been, it would have been small, remote. And so what we need to see here at the end of verse 7 of chapter 2 in Luke's gospel What is this Greek word? Remember, you've got an English translation of the ancient Koine Greek. What we discover is the word in verse 7 that's translated for us as in is also provided for us in Luke chapter 22, verse 11. Here, Jesus, speaking as an adult, this is the evening before his crucifixion, he says these words, And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, 
Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? We've emphasized the word for you, the word guest room. That's the very same word translated as in in verse 7 of Luke chapter 2. Now, what is the guest room? The guest room is the upper room. That's where Jesus is gathering. That's where that first Lord's Supper was done. That's the last supper, if you will, that da Vinci painted wrong in the medieval ages. So if it's an upper room at the end of Luke, why is it an inn at the beginning of Luke? And you begin to see the picture. In fact, had Jesus wanted to say there was an inn in Bethlehem, he would have used a different word. Over in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan story. Do you know this story? Do you know this one? I'll, I'll just keep talking to myself. Yeah, I know the story. Thanks for asking, Pastor. Do you know the story? So yeah, here it is in Luke chapter 10. Jesus sort of sums up the parable when he says these words. He set him on his animal, brought him to an inn. There Jesus uses the word that is universally recognized in Greek for what we think is a motel or an inn. So here's our myth. We've grown up thinking that the first place Joseph and Mary went to was the Motel 6. It was the cheap inn, the side of the road, you know, a motel, not a hotel, where the doors faced outward and there was no room for them. In fact, what happens is in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it's a word that means a generic place for any place to stay. Let me show you. Here's how it might be translated in verse 7. Because there was no place for them in the guest room. The very same word is translated in chapter 22, verse 11. So having exploded one myth, let me show you a second myth that oftentimes grows up around Christmas. Mary and Joseph were turned away by everyone. Here's our second myth, that Mary and Joseph were turned away by everyone. Now in the first century, Mary and Joseph, when they went to Bethlehem, they would have been taken in by family family would receive them. Look at verse 4 where the Bible says, Joseph makes his way from Nazareth into Bethlehem. Look again, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee. Now that's the northern region, okay? And he made his way down from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. He would head south to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. You know, it's a remarkable thing when a foreign exchange student would come to America, when a young international comes in college. You know what they anticipate when they get to America? They anticipate often eating at our homes. They expect to be welcomed into homes for a dinner. But nobody does that anymore here, do they? At best, we might meet you at a restaurant. In the first century, Joseph and Mary would have met up with family. They wouldn't have gone to a hotel, motel, or an inn. They would have been received by family. Why do we get that from? Well, one, Joseph was of the lineage of David. It would be as if you went to George Washington's hometown and you said, I am from his lineage. I mean, he is a big, big deal. Secondly, you need to be aware of that Joseph likely, if it wasn't him or a previous generation such as father or grandfather, they may very well have been from Bethlehem. Maybe he relocated to Nazareth due to work or some other vocation or some other family piece. He had connections in the Bethlehem area. In fact, we know this from chapter 1. Mary had connections. Do you remember when Mary, the pregnant Mary, met up with the pregnant Elizabeth? Mary was pregnant with Jesus. 
Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. They were cousins. Where was Elizabeth? Verse 4, look at those words. Judea. It's the same place as where Bethlehem would have been. So had they actually perhaps gone to an inn, which they didn't, had they gone there, they would have perhaps, you say, would have turned away. But if they were turned away, they would have no doubt found a resource when they went to Elizabeth's house. If there was no family received them in Bethlehem, they had family nearby. They were connected. They would have gone to family and stayed there. In fact, that first century house would have had a first level of a living area. Had they been a little more wealthy, they would have built a guest room. There they would have brought their animals into the house. Where did I say? Into the house is where they brought their animals. If you were wealthy, you would have had a barn, but people didn't have barns. So they brought their animals in the morning, and they, let their, they, brought, they brought them in the evening, and then let the animal go back uh, out in the yard. By the daytime, they'd bring it back in, or by the evening. And so this was the normal procedure. This was where Jesus would have been born, into a home in Bethlehem, an extended family, perhaps cousins or great-grandparents of that type of thing. In fact, look at verse 7 again. She gave birth to the firstborn, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. Now, why would a manger not be in a barn? It's because the animals would come inside the house of the first century. In the Gospels, Jesus will have this debate with one of the religious teachers. They'll get on to Jesus. They'll say, why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Jesus said to the religious teacher, you untie your animals on the Sabbath. If you can untie an animal, why can't I heal on the Sabbath? The point there being, every religious person of the first century of normal economic means would have had an animal that was in the house in the morning. It would have been a sunken living room. We have a a recessed living room, perhaps you do in your home. They would have brought the animal there, tied it up. As the morning began, you would have released the animal, got it out of the house. Someone would have swept up after the animal, no doubt, the first century equivalent of a, a teenager. Amen, hallelujah. And then the animals brought right back in the house in the evening. Why would they do that? One, for security. Two, for the warmth at the times the animal would need the warmth. Jesus was laid in a manger. We know that, and it's a feeding trough. Now, here's the humbleness of Jesus. God decided to have his son born, and immediately when Mary lays down the child, she puts him in a feeding trough, a place that perhaps a day later when Jesus would have vacated that house, the snout of an animal would have been feeding there. So the Bible teaches this. He's not born in the inn. They were not turned away. He was not born in a barn. He was likely born into a peasant's house, the poor of the poor. The guest room that Joseph and Mary were staying in, there was no room for her to have birth. Perhaps the city was teeming with family. Remember, he's of the lineage of David. Lots of family members would have come to Bethlehem. So it would have been a reunion. But the moment of a birth The men would need to vacate that place, and there needs to be adequate space. So she has the baby. And as she has the baby, they lay the child down in a feeding trough in a home. Can you imagine the Son of God and all of his royalty? He was not born in a mansion. He was not born in Buckingham Palace. He was not born in the temple or a palace. He was born in a place where there's a feeding trough where animals would have fed, but hours in front of and hours afterwards. 
This is the story of a royal king of the most humble beginnings. First, don't miss where Christmas took place. Now, why is it important to get this? Because we live in this multicultural, multicultural world. People of the Middle East, when they read the Christmas story and they hear the American interpretation, they know we're wrong. We've got to get it accurate. If we're going to communicate the Bible clearly, we've got to make sure every piece of it is historically accurate. So know where Christmas took place. Secondly, do this. Know where, know why Christmas takes place. Here's the second piece. Know why Christmas takes place. And this is important. You can know all about the where, but unless you miss and understand the why, then you really don't understand Christmas. If you want to capture all of Christmas, it's important that you not only know the where, but you know the why, because the power of Christmas is so much in the why of Christmas. Why did he come? When we think about missing Christmas, again, a hundred holiday movies on any given year are made about Christmas. You can listen to Christmas songs 24-7. The stations will play them. And you can do both of those and still miss the essence of Christmas. Pastor Rick Warren of California, some years ago, decided to just go into the malls, go into the shopping areas, and ask people what they were celebrating this time of year. I love this question. He said, again, why are you celebrating? Here's what he understood. They said, one person said to him, I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating because I made it through another year. We would say that in 2020, wouldn't we? Yeah. Another person said, I'm celebrating being home with my family. One person said, I'm celebrating because I got a Christmas bonus. Somebody else said, I'm celebrating because my son is home from Iraq. Another person said, I'm not celebrating anything. To me, I'm just trying to survive this. Now, all of those reasons are probably valid reasons at some level. If you were to ask me in a shopping place, I might say any of those. But you're going to miss the essence of Christmas if that's the only reason you think you're celebrating. If you're going to understand Christmas, you have to understand the gift, the gift of Christmas. Now, we all understand at some level giving and receiving gifts. Did you hear about the wife? Married for a number of years who had a dream. She woke up. She told her husband the dream. She said, I dreamt for Christmas you got me a diamond necklace. Well, he was smart. He was listening. He was paying attention. So within a few days, there was a beautifully wrapped box. And the wife begins to unwrap this beautiful box. What's she expecting to get? A diamond necklace. When she opened it, she discovered there was a book on how to interpret your dreams. (laughs) When you think about giving... When you think about giving, perhaps children do it and receive it the best. Did you hear about the little boy that wrote his grandmother? He wrote these words, Dear Grandma, thank you for the Christmas present you sent me. The present you sent me for Christmas was almost as good as the one I wanted. So when we think about giving, we get it. We get it. In fact, how many of you have re-gifted? You've re-gifted a gift at Christmas. Look at that. There's some truthful hands going up, and then the rest of you are liars. Fifty... <laughs> of people recently surveyed said that they have re-gifted a gift. I've done it. You don't know what I've done. We're not re-gifted the gift, but we've all done it. I like the story of the man who re-gifted his wedding gift. He received a wedding gift. He re-gifted it. The only problem was he forgot to take out the $300 check that was inside the box with his name on it. A little bit of embarrassing. Now, you can do all those gifts. You can re-gift. You could receive the greatest gift, but unless you receive the one gift that God gives you, you're going to miss Christmas. 
And this one gift to you is the gift God gives. And there's three pieces of this gift I want you to see. There's three pieces. First of all, it's the most pricey, the most pricey gift. It is the most expensive gift you receive. It's a must-have. Now, you may be so lucky this Christmas, you may get one of those foreign import cars, you know, that you see on television with the red bow. God bless you if that's you. But the most expensive gift you'll receive is the gift God gives you. It's the gift of his son. It cost his son's life. Secondly, you need to know that this gift will last forever. It lasts forever. This third, this gift is the most practical gift you'll ever receive. It's something you will use every day. It's the gift of his son. In fact, in verse 10 and 11, the angels will say in Luke chapter 10, that today in the city of David, a Savior is born. Let's circle back for just a moment. Jesus born in a feeding trough. Now, how did that come to be? How could we could not rescue the Son of God and place him somewhere other than a feeding trough? And the answer is God plans it. God purposely planned to put his Son in the most humble of the beginnings. No, there was no innkeeper. No, there was no Grinch that turned him away, but there was a feeding trough and a peasant family. In fact, you remember what happened to Jesus next? The family sticks around for several weeks. They would have been in the Bethlehem, Jerusalem area for at least 40 days, according to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And then Joseph is warned. He's warned, and he leaves the area. He goes to Egypt. He spends some time there. And then Joseph, the father, the Gospels tell us this, he wanted to come back to Bethlehem. There's a clue that he probably had family there. He wants to come back to Bethlehem, not Nazareth, Bethlehem. By the way, it would take you at least an hour to travel between those by car today on highway. Even then, he didn't come back because Herod's family was ruling. He was fearful that the family of Herod would come after Mary's son, the son of God. So he relocates to Nazareth. Now, what kind of town, what kind of reputation did Nazareth have? Well, you find out when off the lips of one of his disciples, years later, the grown-up Jesus, right around 30 years of age, is being introduced to one of his future disciples. And the disciple says, where's he from? You remember the story? That's when they said, he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, if you're with God in the planning stages and you say, let's, let's send Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, let's send him to earth. Are you going to plan to put him in a feeding trough and put him in a backwater town such as Nazareth? You see the kind of ruler Jesus is? He's not the kind of ruler we expect today. Most of the presidents, most of the leaders of our world today, they've got the right school. They've got the right way they speak. They come from the right race or the right education. All those things matter. Whether it's the Ivy League up in the Northeast or a prestigious school here in Texas, the checking off the right boxes, Jesus did none of that. At his birth, he's born into a feeding trough. The first piece of furniture was not a crib. Even my kids had a special crib. Jesus didn't have that. And then... He's relocated to a place that's a backwater city. He didn't have the right education. He didn't have the right credentials. None of them. And why did that happen? Because God planned it that way. 
the Father and the Son and the Spirit strategized intentionally that this is how the Son of God would exist and he would come. He's unlike any other ruler the world's ever seen. And it makes sense, doesn't it? The one who would be borrowed in a, who would be laid into a borrowed tomb would be born into a feeding trough. You know, all through Jesus' life, they wanted him to ascend to be king. You'll hear this question from time to time on the lips of the disciples. Is this, is this the moment you're going to take over? Is this the moment you're going to reign, that you'll be the reigning Messiah? Instead of ascending to the throne, at the apex of his life, the zenith of his life, Jesus is crucified on a cross. Jesus would continue to teach each and every time when asked, is thou when you're going to reign? Jesus would say, no. In order for me to save the world, I've got to give up power. I've got to be power through weakness. Rather than ascending to the throne, he is crucified on a cross. God planned every step of this. When I think about Bethlehem, I think about the carol. Good news today, I'm not going to sing. Old little town of Bethlehem. And I love the story. Philip Brooks wrote that. He came in at six foot four and weighed over 300 pounds. The carol, Little Town of Bethlehem, originates because on a Christmas Eve, Philip Brooks, a pastor, showed up in Bethlehem. He had ridden on horseback from Jerusalem into Bethlehem. Six miles is the journey. On that evening of December 24th, he would stand next to the cave in which the Reportedly, the shepherds received the angel's message. And then at 10 o'clock at night, as the story goes, Philip Brooks walked into the church in the Nativity, which has had a continuous presence since Helena of Constantine. Helena, the mother of the Roman Emperor Constantine, she recognized what the common people of Bethlehem said, this is the location of Jesus' birth. So he's there at 10 o'clock, and he stays until 3 o'clock. Philip Brooks said it was the most wonderful experience he'd ever could remember of worship. In fact, he penned a poem that in 1868 was put to music because it was to be a Christmas carol for the kids. You know the words to the song. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and endless sleep. The silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth an everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And then he gets to the next stanza. Listen carefully. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the glad good tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. That's the message of Christmas. Brooks got it. You don't have to watch the movies. You don't have to decorate the house. You don't have to purchase gifts. You don't even have to go to Bethlehem like Brooks did so many years ago. But you do have to receive that one gift. And if you miss the one gift, you miss the power of Christmas. There may not be an innkeeper that turned away Jesus. But there's been many a people who've turned away Jesus for all kinds of reasons. Oh, cast out our sin and enter in, Brooke said, and be born in us today. You know, when you think about Jesus Christ and the gift 
that he is. Why did God plan for him to be born in such a humble place? And it's fitting, isn't it? For the one who is destined to die naked on the cross, would it be fitting for him to be robed in purple like royalty at his birth? It's fitting, isn't it, for the one who'd be laid in a borrowed tomb? He's not to be born in a mansion. It's fitting that he is born in a manger. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.